Well, I spent about seven and a half years of my life in a small town called uh, Graham, Texas. It was, uh, if you think about the Bible Belt, many would have said that this was the buckle of the Bible Belt. A lot of places would claim that, but Graham, Texas, uh, for the 9,000 people who lived in that little town, uh, there were about uh, more than 50 churches, and uh, everybody would have said that they were, were a Christian. And um, Yeah, I think uh, eagerness was not really what you saw. Uh, urgency was not really what you saw in the lives of, of a lot of people there. Except there was one gentleman. Uh, he was uh, kind of an outsider uh, to, to most people in the town, but he, uh, he had a little store that was kind of right in the middle of town, and um, he would, from time to time, put a sign out front or stand out front with a sign that said that the end is near, and then he would write the date and the time that Jesus would return. And then next to that, he would have a sign that says, stop and take anything that you want because I'm not going to need it anymore, or something to that version. And, you know, this would happen, this would happen one month, and then people would come and, I guess, take all this stuff, and then Jesus wouldn't return, and uh, I guess he'd go back to work, and then a couple months later, sure enough, he would be back down there with his sign again that the end is near, and Jesus is returning, and here's the date, and here's the time, and you should be ready, and come and take my stuff, because I'm not going not to need it anymore. And as you might imagine, even the Bible Belt, he was snickered at a bit. Um, people thought that this guy was, was, was kooky. And while it is certainly true that you should never set dates about when the Lord Jesus is, return, uh, is going to return, and as off as that gentleman may have been in many ways, his conviction about the fact that the end is near and the fact that the Lord Jesus is going to return was actually a whole, mo- a whole lot more in line with what Jesus taught than the millions of people, billions of people, who never even give it a thought. And this morning, what we're going to see in our text is that the Lord Jesus wants His people to think regularly about the fact that the end is indeed near. And that there is a day coming when the Lord Jesus will return and He will call all people to account. And that the way we live today will inform what will happen on that last day when we see Him. We pick up this account in Luke chapter 17. We'll be in verse 20. Leading up to this, Jesus has been warning His disciples to be on guard against temptation and against empty religion. Jesus is just a few weeks really away from heading into Jerusalem for His last trip there for when He will be crucified. And as He is preparing to be crucified for for sinners, He is reorienting the hearts of His disciples to be ready for what lays ahead. This is where we pick it up in Luke chapter 17, verse 20. Jesus will first speak to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, about the kingdom of God, and then He will turn His attention to the disciples. Verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he, meaning Jesus, answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. 
For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding at the mill together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Lord, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Our big idea this morning for a sobering text is this. That we must be ready for the return of Jesus so that we are not swept away in judgment when He comes. We must be ready for the return of Jesus so that we are not swept away in judgment when He comes. The way we're going to consider this text is in in two sections. Verses uh, 20 down through uh, 25, we're going to see the need to receive Jesus' kingdom now. Receive Jesus' kingdom now. Jesus is going to talk about what's happening now in regards to the kingdom of God. And then in verses 26 down through the end, we're going to see the need to ready yourself for Jesus' return. Ready yourself for Jesus' return. He's going to help us to think about how to be ready for when He comes back. Let's look here at the need to receive Jesus' kingdom now. Again, verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, He answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God is a a consistent theme that runs throughout the Old Testament. It speaks about God defeating His enemies and then ruling and reigning over His people in righteousness and faithfulness, that they will know His protection and His provision and His joy forevermore. Daniel chapter 2, which John preached on a number of weeks ago, uh, we hear in verse 44 of this kingdom. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. That has always been the hope of God's people. That God would send Messiah. He would send the Savior to come and to do away with evil and establish righteousness and to rule over His people in love and faithfulness. This has long been the hope of God's people. It was in the Old Testament and even now as we will see. 
And Jesus often spoke of this kingdom of God, and he also claimed that he was the one who was ushering it in. This is why the Pharisees are asking Jesus when the kingdom of God would would come. Because all Jewish people are awaiting the Messiah to bring the kingdom, but but Jesus' humble and patient ministry didn't really seem to match up with this, this glorious expectation that everybody had for Messiah. So what they're doing is they're, they're asking Jesus, so where is, the, where is the, the, the wolf lying down with the lamb? Where are the, the, the people who are beating plowshares into pruning hooks? When is it that people will study war no more? All these promises from the prophets. Where is this kingdom? We don't, we don't see it. And Jesus replies to them that the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. What he doesn't mean is that there won't be any signs at all. He's about to lay out a bunch of signs in the chapters ahead. But what Jesus is, is saying is that the kingdom of God doesn't need to be hunted for here and there. Like, where's Waldo? It doesn't need to be like that. It, it's not supposed to be, we're not supposed to be down here clamoring around through all the details of everyday life, figuring out, oh, is that the kingdom or is this the kingdom? I remember back when I lived in, in Texas, um, when I w- went to school in Dallas, I would sometimes listen to the, to the radio and um, there was this show that I would tune into. I forget what it was called, but it was these guys who basically, they were all about the end times. And, you know, they'd start it with the music, dun, 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 end times are near. And then they would go through, and basically what they would do is they would read all the headlines of the day, and then they'd say, you know, open to the bowls of revelation. And then they'd show you where you are in light of whatever Oprah or Obama or OPEC was, whatever's happening in that day, they show you where you are in the bowl of revelation. Jesus says, don't do it like that. That's, that's not the way that you're supposed to be hunting for, for the kingdom of God. Jesus says you don't need to, be, to go looking here and there for signs of the kingdom. Why? Well, Jesus says to the Pharisees, because the kingdom of God is right in front of you. Verse 21, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Again, he's speaking to the Pharisees. They're like, hey, Where's the kingdom, Jesus? And he says, it's in the midst of you. Now, if you have an NIV there, you may have the translation, the kingdom of God is within you. It's, it's just a different way that you can, uh, you can render the, the same Greek, Greek word here. Um, and I think the, the rendering of in the midst of you makes, makes more sense. Because while it's true that the Holy Spirit dwells within God's people, the, the New Testament always speaks of God's people entering the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of God entering them. And even more clearly than that, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees who are not believers. So the kingdom of God is certainly not in them because they're not believing. This is why the reading, I think, of in the midst of you makes makes more sense in the context. What Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of God is before you. It's in your presence. It's in your midst. The Pharisees want to know when the kingdom of God is coming. And the answer is, it's right in your face. They don't need to go looking for the kingdom of God because Jesus is the embodiment of the kingdom of God. Jesus has been proclaiming messages as the king. He's been performing miracles as proof of his kingly authority. But they're ignoring all the signs that are right there in front of their eyes. He says, you don't need to go searching for signs. The sign has come to you. It's me. He's in their midst. In the context, from what we saw a couple weeks ago, they're much like the nine lepers who encountered Jesus but then walked away 
missing who he really was. And they should actually take their cue from the Samaritan leper who was healed and who came back and bowed down, recognizing Jesus as worthy of worship. Now, as we talk about the kingdom of God, there's something that's important to understand. Okay, how does this apply to the way we should think about the kingdom of God today? Because Jesus is not here in our midst, so how should we, what does this mean now? When we study about the kingdom of God in the scriptures, it's really clear that there's an already aspect to the kingdom of God and there's a not yet aspect. An already and a not yet reality to the kingdom of God. The already sense is that Jesus, well, Jesus established this in his first coming. He he came, the eternal son of God became man and came among us. And as he walked on the earth, he walked as the heir of the father about to inherit all things. The Father is going to give all authority to him. Jesus will talk about that after his resurrection. He proved his authority by miracles. He died, he rose, he ascended, and now Jesus reigns as the Davidic king over the saints in glory who are already where we desire to be and over his church on the earth now. So now the kingdom of God is among you in the sense that God's spirit dwells within his church and that we are, as it were, the, the body of Christ. His, 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 the kingdom is, is among us in, in, that, in that sense. So we now, as we await the return, the not yet part of the kingdom of God, the final establishment of the, the final stage where we will enjoy him face to face forever, we now by faith, by the power of his spirit, as his body on the earth, go about obeying him so that we will be set apart in holiness, showing the distinctness in the good life of knowing God and his ways that are set apart from the tragedies of sin, and that we proclaim the good news of the gospel, that the king is, has come, but he's coming back, and that he has given amnesty to any who will turn from their treason of sin and repent and bow a knee to Jesus today, you can be his, and not just a citizen of his kingdom, but a child of God. You'll be born again. You'll be forgiven of all your transgressions. You'll be reconciled to him. That's good news. The kingdom is in the midst of the world even now through the church as Christ wraith and rules over it by the power of his spirit. But this isn't the final stage of, of the kingdom. There is there's much more to come. Jesus will one day return and judge the world. He will establish his eternal reign with his people. This is the hope that God's people have that already we're enjoying him by faith and one day we will need faith no longer for we will enjoy him by sight in his presence. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Now, he turns his attention to the disciples in verse 22. He said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. So there's going to be a lot of deceivers that are going to try and trick you into thinking that, there's, that Jesus has come. He says, no, no, no. Verse 24, as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. 
So Jesus turns away from the Pharisees, the unbelieving religious leaders of the day who are leading people away in false understandings about God, and he turns to his disciples, the Christians, the followers of, of, of the Lord Jesus. And he says to them, his kingdom and how and when it comes is essential to, to understand. He wants them to understand this as well. This is not just for non-believers. This is for them as well. This first stage, it's, it's slow, it's gradual, and it's coming. The gospel goes out. People are coming to know Christ. But when Jesus returns to establish the final stage, it will be impossible to miss, he says. Verse 24, as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Listen, y'all, when Jesus returns, it will be unmistakable. Have you ever been outside in, at, at night in a lightning storm? It's not like you're like, oh, what was that? You see it. Boom, and it takes, lights up the whole sky. You don't miss it. There's no doubt as to what just happened. Or again, I guess this is the day of Texas illustrations, but back when we were in Texas, um, I, I remember one time there was a, a tornado siren that went off. I, in my time there, I didn't see a lot of them, but when a tornado siren goes off, there is this eerie quietness and this hush that goes over just everybody because something big is coming. I don't know if you've ever seen a tornado before. I have not seen a full-fledged one, but I was driving along when this tornado siren was going off and the clouds were so dark and I, I saw the, the sky rotate like that. <laughs> Listen, I'm just telling you, it, was, it is not what you want to be seeing. It is absolutely terrifying, and nobody's missing it. Jesus says when he returns, a tornado, lightning, it's going to pale in comparison to the sort of announcement that comes when the Lord of glory descends to the earth. He says, you ain't, you ain't going to miss it. It will be an unavoidable invasion from heaven. In Matthew 24, 29, he says, After those days the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Revelation 6, 13, The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. When the Lord Jesus returns, there is some sort of cataclysmic altering of reality. When Jesus comes, the glory of his light is so much so that it appears that stars vanish and fall. His power and the thunder of his voice shakes mountains to dust. When he comes, ain't nobody going to miss it. All these jokers saying, oh, Jesus has come. You know, he's over here. You know, he came to Idaho again or wherever they're saying he showed up. Like, don't believe that. Don't believe that. You will know when he comes. We don't know exactly what it will be like when he returns, but we can be certain no one will miss it. However, one thing that people were in danger of missing and misunderstanding, especially in the disciples' day, was what had to happen before the king would come in his glory. Verse 25. But first he, meaning Jesus referring to himself here as the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now, if you're familiar with the term Son of Man, it comes from Daniel chapter 7, 
where you see the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father, and then you see one like a Son of Man who comes up. It's Jesus. And He is given all authority to judge the world. So when Jesus is using this phrase, Son of Man, that's what He's referring to. This one who is given authority from the Father to rule and to reign and to judge over all people. And that's the idea that people had in their mind of a Messiah. But Jesus says, that's not the only idea you need to have. But because before Jesus would reign, he would be rejected. Before all will bow a knee, all are going to raise a fist. Before he's going to wear a crown, he is going to bear a cross. Before he crushes his enemies, he will die for them. And this is something that that was not on the radar of everybody when they were trying to figure out what the kingdom of God and the coming of Messiah were going to be like. Messiah is going to come, but he first came not to destroy sinners, but to save them. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus will come again one day to judge the world. All those pictures of Messiah will come to pass. But he first came to be judged for the world. The reason Jesus tarries even now, even now, right now, (laughs) is so that he can extend mercy to his people. Like right now, if Jesus were to return... There are are some in this room who would not know mercy, but they would know judgment. And it's even God's mercy today that you would hear this word, to turn your heart, to trust in him, to, to seek him for forgiveness, that you might be saved from his judgment that is to come. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So if you're here this morning and you know yourself to not be a Christian, God has been patient toward you. He has been merciful toward you. Even allowing you to hear this message, which I know when I was not a Christian would have offended me. Even the offending that you feel, I want you to know is God's mercy toward you because it's alerting you to something that's going on in you. The Bible says that it's God's kindness toward you that is to lead you to repentance. Look unto Christ. And if you're a believer, there's good news for us. The Jesus who has given you new life is coming again soon and we will enjoy eternal life with him forevermore. And what this is intended to do is it's intended to move us to want to see him. Did you catch that in verse 22? The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. This is to be the posture of the heart of the Christian. That you you want that day to come. You want to see His face. You want to hear His voice. You want to be embraced by Him and whatever that is going to look like, you want to know Him. You want to be with Him. This is the heart of the believer. You will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. This is one of the predominant themes that that just runs throughout the New Testament. How much God's people long 
to see and to be with Jesus. This is one of the things you've got to understand about Christians. Christians are not just about religion. Now, we can get caught up in it when we lose perspective of what we're really supposed to be about. But Christians are not just about a religious club. We're about Jesus. This one who died for us and rose for us and is returning to take us to be with him. We love him. We want to see him. We want to know him. We want to please him with our lives. Jesus says in Matthew 9, 15, we will fast because the bridegroom is gone. 2 Timothy 4, 8, we're those who love his appearing. Titus 2, 13, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 8, it's interesting, Peter who was with Jesus when Jesus spoke this said this, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him, You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. Listen. Jesus came the first time to die and to rise, and now we are to receive the kingdom by bowing a knee to the king. And what that does is it gives us a new heart where God's Spirit dwells in us and changes the things that we love and we long for, and it's intended to reorient our entire lives heavenward. Not to where we don't care about life and people around us, but we care about them in a way that is distinctly different. They're not just means to an end. They're not just people who are in the way when we're trying to get to work. But rather, we see things now in light of eternity to where now we love people in light of that and we long for Jesus to come which is where Jesus goes now in our second point. To ready yourself for Jesus' return. We are to ready ourselves for Jesus' return. Verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying, selling, planting, and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is on, in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed, and one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And before we begin to unpack this, I need to point out one other interpretive issue. Some of you may have noticed that there's no verse 36 there. If, you're, if you have an ESV Bible, you probably don't have an, uh, a verse 36. If you have a King James or a New King James or a New American Standard, you do have a verse 36, um, which reads, two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Um, the reason that this is here, all of you probably have a little note there in your Bible, is that, um, yeah, that, 
That verse shows up in some of the later manuscripts. Um, but again, I, I would go with the, the ESV decision here to not include it for a couple reasons. First of all, and the, the, the predominant reason, is because it's not in the earliest manuscripts. It becomes pretty clear when you look through the manuscript evidence that this is something that was added later by a scribe. Now, there's other places in the Bible where that's there and it, it causes more conversation of, about the implications of what's there. This is not one of those places because what's included is actually a verse from another gospel. It's from Matthew 24, verse 40. So it's not like there's something serious missing here or anything like that. Uh, by the way, this is one of the things that, that we, we know about the Bible, so this should not surprise you. Or if you're new to Christianity, don't freak out. Everybody knows about this. It's okay. That's why we have little notes in our Bible with a highlight where these things are. There's lots of good explanation. Still able to trust uh, God's Word fully. I'm happy to talk to you more about that if you'd like to know more about it. But what Jesus wants us to see here very clearly is that there are two historical examples of divine judgment that we are supposed to see and be sobered by in light of the fact that a final judgment is coming that they foreshadow. The first there is the days of Noah. Again, verse 26, just as in the days of Noah, so be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. If you are familiar with that story, remember that God warned the ancient world that judgment was coming. For 120 years, he warned them. He sent a messenger to alert them, a man named Noah. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 calls Noah a herald of righteousness. You also remember that God commanded Noah to do what? To build a what? Build an ark, to build a big, a big boat. God provided a way of escape for Noah and for all who would enter it by faith. And God called Noah to enter it by faith so that they could escape the coming judgment. How did the ancient world respond to that? Just shrugged their shoulders. They did what everybody did in, in Graham when they drove past guy with a sign. Honk, honk. <laughs> Just shrug shoulders and keep, keep doing your thing. You see, they were, they were too happy with their lives, too secure in their accomplishments too absorbed with their entertainments, too busy with their business. The, day, the people in the days of Noah literally missed the boat. The flood came and destroyed them all. This is not just some ancient story that a bad movie has been made out of. This is a true account of a real part of history, human history, where God once judged the entire world. And he provided a way of escape that people were to enter by faith, that they might not be swept away in judgment. But most did not receive it. Every man, woman, young and old, rich and poor, privileged and oppressed, everybody, everybody died. They had been warned, but they were too consumed with what the world had to offer, and it calloused their hearts toward heaven and the warning that God had given them about what was to come. The same thing happened in the days of Lot. 
Verse 28, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on that day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. God had endured with the evil of Sodom and Gomorrah for, for a long time. Scriptures testify both of their immorality and also their injustice. And they ignored Lot's witness. And just like the ancient world, they yawned at heaven's warnings until heaven opened up and consumed them with fire. This again is not some made-up story. This is a real account that actually happened in human history that God has preserved to act as a warning for us, saying this sort of thing is going to happen again. There's four little observations that I think are important for us to take from these two accounts of Noah and Lot. The first is that we need to beware of being calloused toward eternity. We need to beware of being calloused toward eternity. Did you notice what people in Noah's and Lot's days were consumed with when God sent the judgment? Did you catch it? Verse 27, eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage. Eating, drinking, verse 28, eating, uh, drinking, buying, selling, planting, and building. Now what stands out to you about those things? None of them are sinful in themselves. That's just everyday life stuff. Stuff that many of us all have done this, this weekend or in the past couple weeks or months. This is, this is everyday life. Now, certainly there was sin that God talks about, both of Sodom and Gomorrah and of the ancient world, but what Jesus highlights here is not that. Rather, he's highlighting here that, that though none of these are sinful in and of themselves, huh, there's a way that you can go about life doing normal, everyday things and be completely and completely ignore the fact of eternity. But there's also a way to go about life that is sober-minded, that's aware of God, that's pleasing to God. We're told whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. We're told that to work unto the Lord, for the Lord will reward you. So there's actually a way to do all of the things that they were doing every day in a way that pleases God, but there's also a way to be a practical atheist with your life where you're just caught up in the machine and you just go, go, go and do, do, do and ignoring the fact that there's actually a God who sustains you and that one day you will answer for everything that we've done to Him. Beware of being callous toward eternity. The second thing is to be certain that judgment is coming. Be certain that judgment is coming. You see, God has given these examples to put us on high alert. He judged before, and he will judge again. If you've ever seen a flood and what it does, like a legit flood, it washes everything away. We've seen a lot of fire and the destruction of what it does recently on the news. It reduces everything to ashes. Well, the Lord is saying those previous judgments are but shadows of the final judgment that is to come. In some way, they pale in comparison to what is to come when the Lord Jesus returns. And you must be certain that judgment is coming. 
The third observation here. Be ready to be mocked for believing in judgment. Be ready to be mocked for believing in judgment. I can't tell you as a non-Christian how many times I would have laughed through this sermon. I would have, I would have heard these warnings and been like, man, this is just nonsense. This is foolishness. This is scare tactics. Where, when are you going to pass the plate? You just want some money. What, what is it? That's the posture I would have had toward these things. Peter warns us of this. We heard this earlier from 2 Peter 3. Know this, scoffers will come in the last times with their scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You'll remember that before Lot left, he warned his sons-in-law. But what did they do? How did they respond to his warning about the coming judgment? They laughed at him. They thought he was joking. Now, some have said that they laughed at him because he was a hypocrite, which may have been true. So two things on that. Number one, don't be a hypocrite. All right? Don't make it more difficult to believe the message that God gives because you live like no different than everybody else. Actually, if, if your life is marked by unrepentant hypocrisy, you should be very concerned as to whether you know the Lord at all. And secondly, if you're not a Christian, listen, do not reject God and fall under his judgment because somebody else is a hypocrite. On that last day, God will deal with that person for their hypocrisy. But don't allow someone else's sin to lead you or tempt you to stumble over the warnings that God gives. Because notice, God still judged the cities, even though they laughed about it. The fourth and final thing to observe here is we should bank everything on the fact that God will deliver his people. We should bank everything on the fact that God will deliver his people. In these examples, we see God's faithfulness to judge evil, but we also see God's faithfulness to deliver his people from the judgment. Noah was warned, he was instructed, and then he was summoned into the ark. You remember uh, what the, the angels said to Lot? Get out of town because we can't do anything until you're gone. God had entrusted the judgment to the angels. He was going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah through the angels evidently, but he said, we can't, we can't unload until we remove you. We're about to wipe everything away in judgment, but not until you are gone. These examples are intended to strengthen our assurance that God will not forget his people. That he is able to rescue the godly from trials, Peter would say, including the punishment of the last day. It's also intended to keep us sober, to keep our eyes on that approaching day of the Son of Man. Which is where we conclude in verse 31 and following the days of the Son of Man. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away, and likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, then the vultures will gather. Lord, where will this happen? And he says, you'll, you'll know 
In the same way that lightning comes across the sky, you will see Christ coming as it were like a vulture to consume the dead. Jesus turns his, the eyes of the disciples to the day of the Lord with this emphasis that they are to be ready to depart with and leave behind all possessions in order to avoid destruction. What these people are, are fleeing from in this text, it's a little bit unclear. Some would say this is totally fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., when Rome came and destroyed Jerusalem, and the people were to flee from that in, in faith um, because it's a form of God's judgment for rejecting Messiah, which I think is true, but I don't think that's all this is. I think this is also intended to, to have our eyes on the returning day, of the day of the return of the Lord, when Christ himself will come. Jesus' point is that the day is coming, and you must be ready to flee you must be ready to leave behind all possessions, all worldly comforts, all securities. Don't run back to your house to try and grab your jewelry box or the safe. Because verse 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. You see, security on the day of the Lord will not be found in clinging to the things of this world, but rather in clinging to Christ himself. And this text is intended to, to alert us to that to make us hold more loosely to the things of the world that we might cling to Christ by faith. One of the things that's implied here is that if you aren't prepared today to leave all things behind in light of the coming of the Son of Man, when that last day arrives, you will be taken away in judgment. It is those who have their hands holding all things that God has given, but holding them with open hands, saying, this is not where my life is, but rather I want Him how you respond to Jesus on the last day is actually completely dependent on how you responded to Jesus on this day. Verse 34, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding wheat together, one will be taken and the other left. The sobering thought here, that people will be going about their everyday lives just like they were in the days of Noah and the days of Lot and then in an instant, the Lord will return. Just as, and just as flood and fire swept away people in judgment, and Noah and Lot were left with the Lord, so one will be taken in judgment and another will be left with the Lord. Which I do think it's important to notice here that you actually want to be left behind, which is a little bit ironic in light of the series. You don't... You want to be left behind with the Lord, not taken away in judgment. One of the other things to note here I think is very important is that God knows every single person and everything about them. You can have a, you can have a, a husband and wife in bed and God knows if one knows him and the other does not. You can have two people working next to one another and God knows which one knows them and which one does not. Jesus said, I know my own and my own know me. Paul said, the Lord knows those who are his. So if you are a believer, take comfort. God knows you and he will keep you from judgment. But if you are not, take warning because God knows you and he will take you away in judgment. And then he gives a sobering reminder here with verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. There are a few more sobering texts in the Bible than this short one. If you're looking to get up on your Bible memory, this is a good place to start. 
It's short, but very important. Remember Lot's wife. There are other times to consider those who finished well, like Sarah or Hannah or Mary, but, but here, Jesus calls our attention to one whose body left Sodom, but whose heart did not. And it led her to look back and to lose her life. I think it's also important to notice here that, that the Lord is speaking not to the Pharisees who hated him, but to Peter, James, and John who loved him. To them, to the believer, he says, remember Lot's wife. When you go to work this week, go remembering Lot's wife. When you go to cash a check and you hold that money in your hand, remember Lot's wife. When you sit down to watch a show, remember Lot's wife. When you open a drink, remember Lot's wife. When you prepare food, remember Lot's wife. When you get gifts or buy gifts, remember Lot's wife. Because every single day, with every single thing that you're doing, you're cultivating something in your heart. You're either sowing an attachment to the things of the world, or you're seeing them as a sweet gift that come from the Lord that's intended to sow your heart to Him. Those things are happening all the time. So my question for you is, what are you cultivating Are you daily and intentionally? Because if you're just going through life not thinking about this, you will just sow yourself to the world. If if you're continually just retreating to entertainment to get your downtime, if you think that's not affecting you, you're deceived. Do you daily cling to things or to Christ? This was not a one-time decision for Lot's wife. This was the fruit of her life she loved the world and the things of the world and it caused her to look back it's, it eerily echoes another real historical thing if you'll remember um, you probably heard about Pompeii the ancient city that was uh, yeah, rested at the, the foot of a, uh, a volcano in Naples, Italy when the year 79 it erupted and threw ash into the sky and entombed the entire city. And nobody, nobody even knew about it until the year 1738 when it was excavated. And as it was excavated, they began to find all of these people who in an instant were entombed by ash and volcano and lava. There was one particular discovery that has just always stuck, stuck with me. Um, out on what must have been the end of a, of a, of a dock or right near the, near the shore, they, they found one woman who had been, not been able to outrun the lava. And in her arms were a bag of jewels. Evidently, when the volcano came, she ran back. And she grabbed her jewels that were precious to her to try and keep them to make it to the boat or wherever she was trying to make it to, and she didn't. And I think it's a very vivid picture of what Jesus is talking about here. It's not just the clinging to stuff, but it's the heart that clings to stuff. 
What is your hope in? What is your security in? This is an everyday cultivating thing for the, 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 the children of God that we are to be keenly aware that there are things that tempt you to look back. What is it for you that you're tempted to look back toward? What is it that you love so much in the world that you're, you're constantly turning your head away from the Lord and toward it for life? The reason we study the scriptures is because what it does for us is it shows us the preciousness of Jesus. That he is the one who is worth more than silver and gold. That to know him and enjoy him, to be in his presence forevermore, is infinitely more valuable than any sort of pleasure or treasure that this world could ever offer. This is the belief of the Christian. That our hearts are to be knit toward that day when the Lord Jesus will come so that when we see Him, there'll be nothing that we want more than to be with Him. If that is what we're cultivating day in and day out, it changes the way that we do everything. It's evidence of faith in God rather than worldliness, which calluses our heart and leads us toward coldness and away from the Lord. So my exhortation to all of us today, and me included, just to be honest with you, this is a really convicting, convicting sermon for me. It's been a season for me where prayer has been harder. I found myself more easily distracted. When I go to the Word to read, I find myself thinking of 50,000 other things to do. I find myself more desirous to get sports scores or some kind of food or some kind of this or that, and I feel that pulling on me in a way that, as I read this text, I saw to be dangerous. That's what it is for me. Pray for me as I seek to live this better than I would ever preach it. My exhortation to you is to talk to one another about these things. What is it that pulls on your heart that would tempt you away from devotion and sobriety to that day when the Lord Jesus returns? Because he's coming. He's coming soon. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and the way that it lifts our eyes to see the true treasure of the Lord Jesus. And Father, we ask that you would take your word and that you would apply it to us in, in whatever would be most, most useful. God, we pray for those who are in this room who don't know you, that they would, they would not laugh off your judgment, your gracious, merciful warnings. Oh, but that they would hear them as true that they would not be deceived by their sin and think that they somehow would be exempted. Oh God, might you lead them by your tender mercies to see the glories of Jesus. And Father, for those of us who do know you, oh God, might you help us to be very intentional to not knit our hearts and our affections to the world, but to remember Lot's wife and to look away from the things of the world and help us to remember Jesus, the true treasure of heaven. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.